This is the DLR Cast, the essential podcast for fans of Diamond David Lee Roth. All right, folks, welcome back once again to another edition, another episode of the DLR Cast, the podcast all about David Lee Roth buying four fans of the Diamond One. We're fans, but we're not fanboys. I'm joined as always along here with my awesome co host, the dangerous one, Darren Paltrowitz. Darren, how the hell are you? I'm pretty dangerous. Yourself? <laughs> I'm feeling I'm feeling <laughs> dangerous and debonair. I'll think of more D words here somewhere. Uh, dangerous, debonair, uh, not douchey. Definitely not douchey. No. Whatever it is, it's it's great to be on board for another episode. And it's it's kind of deja vu. There's another D word. Where yes. It's like, okay, so another episode. Um, Basically, no activity from Dave Lee Roth or Van Halen, except what was the one news item from the last week? I'm hard-pressed to find. Uh, well, let's uh, see. The, the catalog is due yes. for a premium treatment on MoFi. The Van Halen catalog is due for premium treatment on MoFi Vinyl and SACD. Yeah, I was excited for two seconds because... One of the clickbait classic rock sites says, like, David Lee Roth early albums get remastered treatments. Like, oh, cool. Oh, that was a oh. reworded press release to just say the first six Van Halen records, which continues the threat of, you notice the Sammy albums are not being remastered. That's 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 an interesting sidebar there, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And um, I may or may not have figured out a person who was working on the remasters because he told me about a secret project that he was working on with somebody who has drummed for David Lee Roth before. So I think I know somebody who's on it and I asked him about it and he goes, never heard of it. And I went, okay. That means he <laughs> did work on this because Van Halen is more covert than the FBI. I, I would argue like, you know, when somebody works for the FBI, you don't know when someone works for Van Halen. That's true. That's, that's true. That's as tight as a drum as possible as we await various words and various uh, drips of news from Wolfgang at this point. So I was thinking actually that as we there has been a dearth, if you will, of Dave news is that we are we especially you. I think the saying the saying should be uh, we'll report the Dave news even when there isn't, because you tend to always find something. I mean, we've solved some DLR Vegas band mysteries. I think we're coming to um, real close to coming real close to a total number of people that have been Dave in Dave's band. That's quite a high number. So, oh, yeah, I forgot to tell you this. Uh I, so I was interviewing Andy Timmons. He was in Danger, Danger, excellent guitar player that's world-renowned. In his oh, sure. Life. Yeah, I got a couple of his albums. And he made a reference to a Steve Vai thing, and then I remembered, oh, he played on a Greg Bissonette, Matt Bissonette thing early into the pandemic. So in the middle of the interview, I go, hey, so we talked about Vi. We talked about the Bissonettes. Any Dave stories? <laughs> and the answer is Yes. <laughs> There is. And then he said, oh, you know, why do you want to know? And I told him, he goes, oh, my friend Josh Smith, he auditioned for the band. I I, I think he almost got it. I went, OK, so there's another guitarist related to Dave to chase down. But I, I got to say, I'm so thankful for the listeners of our show. They keep solving some of these mini mysteries that come up. Yeah, here, here. A round of applause. We, you have... 
We've gotten some great information from some listeners. Thank you very much. Crowdsourcing the news here, I guess, if you will, our, our Dave boots on the ground, so to speak, have been coming through. Yeah. One of them, for example, we were kind of wondering during the Mark Elmer episode, why was Bart Walsh blurred out of the No Holds Barbecue video once we figured out that it was Bart Walsh? And the answer is he did sue Dave in the early 2000s. Delay, I don't know how it's a late Bart exactly. Walsh. Yeah, yeah, which Sadly. is a fortunate thing because it's erasing the memory of a really great guitar player. Not only played for Dave, but the Atomic Punks. And uh, did he work for Gibson? Good question. I can't confirm nor deny that. That's a, yeah. that's, a, that's a way to say I do not know. Yes. Yeah, so that was confirmed by some listeners. Mark Elmer was telling us during our interview that he remembered editing Mustang Sally, but then rewatching that video, he didn't see Mustang Sally. He thought he was hallucinating or making that up in his head. <laughs> and one of our <laughs> listeners went, wait, here's Mustang Sally buried in a David Lee Roth, uh, Roth show video. So it was indeed recorded and put out into the world. That's another one. And then we have this listener who he uses the YouTube name Joe Engine. <laughs> and I forget what band that's an alias or uh, an allusion to, but he knows more about Van Halen or, or Dave Lee Roth than I think anybody in the world. And I don't know who that is. So is that the new mystery? Who is this Joe Engine guy? That could very well be. <laughs> but But Joe said an interesting thing. He said that Top Jimmy was named after a bar back in L.A. I'm trying to think back in which biography or different things where I read about Top Jimmy. I thought Top Jimmy was some sort of was a musician. OK, way well, back in the day in some blues bar mystery. or something. I could have this all mixed up, messed up. But I, I think Ergo, the there was a real Top Jimmy. What he exactly did it is based on a real person, right? Yes. Okay. So then one other mystery has slightly evolved due to some David Lee Roth misinformation from DLR himself. Are, are you ready to go into a rabbit hole right oh, now? Oh man, hold on. Let me get my minor, my, my miners hat on. We've got the, the two double D battery, two D batteries in there ready to go. Okay. So you stop me when, when I'm about to put you to sleep or this oh, has boy. gotten too obscure for you. I got to take a lot of notes for the show notes here. So I'm, I'm ready. Okay, so the video, one of the videos that we talked about in a prior episode had the credits that, you know, this cover song and says recorded by this or performed by this. So it said the DLR Vegas band. So we were trying to figure out who is the DLR Vegas band? Are there multiple DLR Vegas bands? Well, it appears that one of them is the one that recorded Ice Cream Man, which had Omar Hakim on drums. The great Omar Hakim, sure. It looks like it was Nigel Rogers on guitar, Tracy Wormworth on bass. Uh, she, her brother was uh, the worm from the Max Weinberg seven. Whenever Max Weinberg <coughs> was on tour with the East street band, it was uh, the worm. Do you know what I'm talking about? Anna? Yeah. And I'm thinking back to, to the Edom to the crazy from the heat book. There's some yeah. photos outtakes of a session, I guess, of them clowning around Dave with the pinstripe zoot suit falling yes. off the, yeah, falling down and stuff. And Edgar Winter was in the band, correct? And uh, yeah, somebody else on keyboards who I can't remember. Nile Rogers was there. Omar Hakim. Yeah, so that's the band you're talking so, about. So far, we're correct on that. So far, we're we're clear. We're pretty sure that is the Vegas band. 
But there's this video that I discovered, much to the chagrin of my wife, over the weekend. And it's on Roth's channel, and it's called The New Roth Show Number 27, The Street of Dreams. And it's like a 30-minute Dave talking to nobody video with the same seven photos looped in a row. Like one of them is him putting his crotch up to the camera. Like it's it's not the best look. And he talks in the middle of nowhere about having a band in Vegas because this is meant to promote his then upcoming 2020 Vegas residency. Okay, so this Roth show is the second iteration of the Roth show. When he would do it, when he would do it in front of a camera with the palm trees, whatever in the background, there was occasionally a voiceover, my co-host DJ, whoever was manning the camera there sort of thing. And of course, with the never ending Dave soundtrack. This did did not have that. This has instead every 30 seconds, instead of taking a breath, it has him yelling in a high pitched multi-tracked Vegas, baby. I mean, it's, it's, it's something. <laughs> that cost $23,000 at Henson Studios, I should have you know. Yeah, I would not <laughs> be surprised. It's, it's a hard listen, but it has some interesting facts in there. And he out of nowhere starts talking about the band he used to have in Vegas. And when I say that there's misinformation from him, he said that it was David Letterman's band without Paul Schaefer. That's not true. The The reason we know that's not true is because when would Schaefer's band have been available to just go, yeah, Dave, we're uh, Letterman, that is, we're not going to be on the air for a couple of months here. Now, I think what he means is that Sid McGinnis, who played lead guitar in the Late Show Orchestra, I think he means because he was in it or played with it, that it was Paul Schaefer's band. Maybe it had Hiram Bullock. I don't know. But he said that in there. And then the other part that confuses me is he said that the band quit because he made an albino joke at Edgar Winter, which I don't believe for a second. They were like friends for 15 years. Yeah. And I mean, Dave can be off color and not politically correct, but he's no dummy. I mean, come on. (laughs) That makes no sense. Like a, a dumb joke because Edgar Al, Edgar Winters Albino, he said, come on, Edgar, lighten up. And then he quit. Like that kind of a thing. That's a story. <laughs> I have to assume that is a story. Oh, my goodness. So I don't think that his band was Paul Schaefer's band. It's possible that there was a second or third person who was later in Schaefer's band who was in there like Felicia Collins on guitar or... I don't know, Willie, maybe Willie was an understudy bassist, but how could that be possible? I have no idea. At this point, the twitch in my eye I'm getting is just trying to follow follow along to all this. You've got the DLR cast where we put the arcane in arcane. Oh, so, <laughs> so then I did a little more investigating and then we can get off this topic if you want. No, but, I'm, I'm always curious to know where this goes because there are so many loose ends everywhere and so much disinformation and misinformation. And mis- I mean, I think some of it just might be Dave's old own stream of consciousness memory gone down some other rabbit hole or something or forgetting or whatever. Yeah. So I mentioned before, it's you know, five, six photos just kind of on loop. Right. Almost like a a screensaver. And two of the photos, at least, 
appear to be the infamous uh, the infamous dress rehearsal show that he did in late 2019 with the band that didn't make it to Vegas. How do I know that? Because I see Chris Griotti in the photo on stage. Mm. So that's where those are from. And then I ask somebody who may or may not have been at that show. Hey, the sound man on stage, is that Tom Sorowski? Who Who's the sound man? And they said, oh, that sound man was with us for one gig. He didn't work with us again. So, man. So from 2019 on, the yeah. Vegas shows, the Kiss shows, the aborted shows that never were to start yeah. 2020, the retirement shows, how many Vegas bands were there? There were three? Three different drummers. Uh, there was two different keyboard players. Um, on guitar, let's see, Al, Frankie, Jake, who we're going to have on the podcast in the near future, just like Frankie, uh, Griotti, that makes four. Andrew, I forget his, I think his name's Andrew Martin, that's five. This is 11 people so far, if I'm counting right. I think there might be a six. I can't think of who it is. Uh. And then Ryan Wheeler survived every incarnation. And he's what? Bass player. Bass player. Right. And musical director. That's right. Yeah. He uh, took over. Originally, the music director was Brett Tuggle. And then we're hearing conflicting things about whether Brett quit, that he eventually couldn't work with Dave anymore, or if Lindsey Buckingham just gave him a better offer and he parted ways for that. Because from, from what I'm hearing... Everyone in that band had a different understanding of how long the gig was going to be. This is just mind boggling to me. I got to tell you, we talk a lot about this. Yeah. And it bursts some bubbles and you don't want to necessarily see behind the curtain. I don't like on the one hand, I love the idea that Dave expects excellence. Yes. On the other hand, I hate the idea that a hero is just completely off the wall when it comes to preparation for this sort of thing. And seems to be, it seems like through the years, it's become more off the wall. Do you know what I'm saying? I totally know what you're saying. I don't think that he's. I don't want to think of Elvis losing it. Well, I don't think he's the most eccentric artist or one of the, the most eccentric artists. I think it's just that by not having a manager or an editor or a consultant that's allowed to say no, you know, a lot of extra, a lot of ideas that other people would consider and ultimately get shot down, that doesn't happen. So, you know, there's other people voting in Van Halen. You could say it was Eddie's band. You could say it right. was Right. You bring up a you bring up a good point with the exception of let's say 2006 or 7 to mm-hmm. to to uh 2019 or whatever. With the, the exception of about a 12-year stretch there, right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of that stretch was with no activity for the most part Dave has collaborated with, uh, there's been not a lot of collaborative things as far as his art's concerned. Yeah, working with a producer and and who knows what we don't know, who knows what may be uh, what may be in a vault somewhere that he did with a producer or 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 somebody really collaborated with, whether it's a John Five or something else as far as writing songs. Um, But I mean, left to his own devices, he's left to his own devices all the time. Yeah. As, far as, as far as the making of his art and how he wants to bring it 
forth to the public and in what form, especially musically, who's going to be, I mean, there's, it just seems like it, it's all been a very increasingly difficult road. Yeah, I'm not mocking uh, the genius behind it. I'm not no. mental illness. No, I'm, no, no, I, not at all. I'm, I just I'm think not there's what he's accomplished, anything like that. I just think that with an editor or a manager or a proper consultant that was allowed to partially steer the ship, the band would not have changed members so many times. Like if if you just if he said outright to a manager, and I'm just spitballing here, but if he said to a manager, I want to play Vegas and I want to make a bunch of money doing it and it'll be cool. They would go, okay, so how many shows you want to do? And he'd go, okay, this many shows. And they'd say, okay, we'll talk to your agent. We'll talk to the, they'll talk to the promoters. We'll see what offers we can have coming in the next couple of weeks. Then they'd get the offers and then they go, yeah. And by the way, if you also tacked on a couple of festivals in Europe and Japan, um, you know what? You'd be making eight times the the money that you're doing because the band's already rehearsed. And then they'd go, okay, let's let's tack that on. And then after that's accepted, the agent will go, and by the way, we could do a second round of dates and we'll do the smaller markets. And then at that point they go, oh, we'll see. But they just kind of came into this going, we're going to do these six or eight Vegas shows. Okay. Yeah, there, there's no, you, you can rehearse all you want. There's no real live seasoning there. And, and then I, I found out that the Kiss shows were added later. They were not part of the initial plan. Hmm. And as you're going to hear from the Jake Fawn interview, there were plans to do many more shows beyond that. This was supposed to be, aside from COVID, a two to three year Dave Conquers the World kind of tour. Physically, I wonder if he was or would be up to that. See, I think so. But uh, Injun Joe, Joe Injun, our excellent, excellent listener, <laughs> pointed out in a comment something that he'd heard Ray Luzier say was that Dave allegedly got heavily tattooed to cover up some scarring from surgery. It's not just Japanese art. That sounds a little too sci-fi and, and cyborgish for my <laughs> for for my thoughts. We do know, however, because he's alluded to it. Yeah. The the toll that his high intensity performing is taking over 40, 40 over forty years. I mean, yeah. Uh, what a, a hip injuries, back surgery. Oh, he's talking about back yeah. surgeries. It's it. There's. I don't know if it's still up there. I haven't looked in a while, but there was some great photos that he had posted at his website around the 2007 tour. And one yeah. of him, them was him getting a massage and it's taken at the head of the table and he is just grimacing. And you can just tell it's not fake, man. Somebody is like digging deep into that tissue, man. You know what I mean? And it's like, yeah, as good a shape as you might be in. And Lord knows there's never been a time in his life in the public eye that he's been certainly looked out of shape your body ages, man, you got to keep you, you got to keep that in a high state of tune. And it, it takes a lot of time and energy to keep it that way. And things are going to break down and, and, and break. And I mean, who knows what we don't know. He could have taken a tumble off the side of a mountain. Uh, you know, it's possible. Got bucked by a couple sheep or something uh, when he was out there wrestling with, with rusty. Right. True. Yeah. 
But the thing that I come to a lot too, and when I go back and forth on this, because clearly my life has very little meaning, when I spend hours digging deep into this. Wait, you're telling the guy who spends his free time <laughs> watching three to five-year-old David Lee Roth videos that are just photo slideshows that you don't have a life? Honey, I'll be down in a minute. I found some Risa Salvaje on eBay in France. Yeah. Uh, hey, I do own the Japanese version of it, too, which is awesome, because why would there be a Japanese version of some Risa Salvaje? But go ahead. Well, here's here's what I'm going to go with finally on this when it comes to the which seems to be a high intensity game of musical chairs with Dave's band. Yeah, I, I have to believe if he's not feeling it. And at some point, he's got to just go, what's the most efficient route here? I got to bring in somebody new. I'm not hearing this in the rhythm section. I'm not feeling this. I'm not hearing this in the sound. I'm not feeling the vibe with these guys. So I think he's got a, he's got a serious, discerning way of doing things, and he wants exactly what he wants, which is great. I just wonder if with more activity, more touring, and for whatever reason why it didn't happen – there's a more efficient way to get that where it's because remember for a long time before Van Halen, he had a core band. Why yeah. did that band work so well together? Cause they were killer guys. Of course, he's always going to hire killer musicians and they rehearsed like crazy and they got how many shows. I mean, how many shows did he do with the core group of who was it? Uh, Ray Luzier, Bart Walsh, uh, who was on bass. Um, I, I, changed, that changed a few times. That changed a little bit. From like 99 to 05. I yeah, think. but for the most part, they're out doing 20 or 30 dates in a row. They go, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. There's, they don't, there's no rehearsals needed by that point. They are seasoned. They are running like a fine-tuned machine. To, to all of a sudden do a series of one-off dates at a caliber of a level you wanted for a bunch of dates that you're going to be a retirement, that's high pressure, man. Let alone with COVID, which knocked them out. Which knocked which knocked that whole thing off course. Yeah. At the end of the day, maybe the smart thing was to pull the to pull the plug on this thing. If you're not going to get what you want, why drive yourself crazy? There's ten different ways to skin that metaphorical cat, but this <laughs> this video from 2019 again called the New Roth Show Number 27 Street of Dreams had some interesting factoids in there that I never heard him say before. Things that confirm little things, like he said he mentions. Getting into the ambulance, aka being an EMT when he was 50, we've always wondered, when did he do that? Well, if he's saying 50, it could mean 48, 49, 51. Right. But now we know that. He How old was he in 90, 1996? 98, when did he do this? Or 90, uh, I've lost track of time. 98, 99, 2000? 20, so this video was about two and a half years ago. So right. What, 68? Is uh, is he sixty eight now? Uh, well, what? <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, now there's math involved, so let's. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> there's math involved, but the key is he mentioned that, and he said that he spent two years in Japan. I thought I'd heard him say that he spent five or six years in Japan, and I laughed that off, going, "You were on tour that time, you know what? That doesn't. You were renting an apartment in the Oakwoods corporate housing." You don't stay there for six years. You stay there for two. It's a two-year lease. Um, so that was kind of cleared up for us. But this had his boasting about, you know, singing some of Eddie's guitar solos at him. That one we've heard. But I never heard this before, that he said that Ain't Talking About Love is him trying to be Mick Jagger. 
is him trying to do satisfaction. I think I think that's the song he said, and him trying to be Mick Jagger. Did you ever hear that before? Never, never. And I don't, I don't hear it when I think about ain't talk about love either. Yeah. So there was that in there, and he actually slags a lot of musicians and makes fun of a lot of musicians in this video. He he talks about really liking Springsteen, but he complains about how. Bruce Springsteen and Neil Young are the same, and they never change, unlike, quote, wrestling. So DLR outs himself as a wrestling fan right there, yet again. Uh, he makes fun of Bono. He sort of makes fun of Kiss, but says he likes Gene Simmons in it, which I've never heard him say before. And this is two years or so before that Gene Simmons feud. And he makes fun of Ozzy. <laughs> And he says he likes David Bowie a lot. So, oh, yeah, he, I, I'm looking at my copious notes. He also talks about liking David Byrne and going to a Kenny Chesney concert. So, <laughs> I mean, Kenny Chesney, I've seen him do uh, Van Halen on some YouTube videos. The guy's a killer guitar player. Is that him or Brad Paisley? I'm sorry, sorry, Brad Paisley. Scratch that. Never mind. Maybe Chesney can't play guitar, but you're right. It's Brad Paisley. Thank you. As soon as those words were tumbling out of my mouth, I realized, wait a minute, I got the wrong country artist. But you just say all that, and I've heard Dave in interviews say he li never listens to rock music. Yeah. Now, maybe all that stuff he grew up with, I'm no doubt he was a fan of of Bowie and, in the 70s coming up and as up as a kid in high school and starting with with i mean i think dave's a musical melting pot to be sure oh no but he was friends with bowie they were close uh, oh really yeah i don't know if they were close until the end of bowie's life but there's been a lot of stories of them crossing paths and i have to assume that them both using nigel rogers around the same period is connected or at least about roth respecting the hell out of bowie Interesting. That's right. The Nile Rogers connection there, huh? Yeah. Rich Hilton played, uh, who was an early guest on the show, played with both of them. Right. Worked on the Roth album because of the Bowie Rogers. Nile Rogers connection. Sure. That's right. Yeah. So uh, I guess if you have 33 minutes of your life uh, and want to hear <laughs> Vegas Baby uh, a lot. Um, I listened to most of those shows after about the first or watched the first 10 minutes or so. I, it was kind of tough to keep my attention span sometimes. But but polar opposite of all this, Vegas. What have you heard about the Hagar shows? I heard uh, heard they were pretty good. Uh, there was one I saw where they were trying, and to his credit, were trying to. There's a video on YouTube where they're working on a brand new new song backstage. Yeah. And then the video cuts to them doing the song, and I like the song. That, that spurred me to pull out my two Chicken Foot albums and give that a listen after hearing that. But that's all I've really heard. I mean, I saw a couple things on, I saw a couple things on YouTube and social media, and that was about it. I did Michael. Michael Anthony got is in the band, right? He's in the band, and he sang lead on a pair of Roth era Van Halen songs. That's really yeah. interesting. Why yes. would, it, why given all the Van Halen hits that they had, given all of Sammy's hits, yeah, why would you do to add two? Why would you put two songs in place of two other songs in the set list? Two Van Halen songs from Van Halen from Dave's era. You want my honest opinion? It's an odd choice. I dig it, but uh, still an odd choice. And honest, why would Sammy go? Yeah, it seems like a good idea. 
Well, I, I think that Sammy and Michael Anthony have an infinite love fest for each other. And oh, of course. Anything that either of them wants, to do, the other will. Yeah, support. they're clearly. There's and I think if you're Michael Anthony, you kind of want to stick your flag in the ground and say, I was in Van Halen. I was instrumental to Van Halen. And there probably won't ever be a, an official performance of a Van Halen song ever again from that era. Why don't I do it? And that's a good take. And can't argue against that. Also, um, there were the rumors that they were using Michael Anthony's recorded vocals on the reunion tour shows. Allegedly. <laughs> Please say allegedly. That's just going to make me cry if that was true. And allegedly, those were also used during the Roth 2020 uh, shows with Kiss and Vegas. But they were using the pre-recorded vocals from that as well. So I think if you're Michael Anthony, you do feel a little cheated that you were forced out in that 04 tour. You didn't get to participate in more stuff. And they're still using your voice on stage. But then Eddie had that interview where he compared Michael Anthony's vocals to a piccolo trumpet. I... I <laughs> that's an that's a real mystery. The vitriol. Yeah, um, it's easy it. to forget about that with just the outpouring of everything we read after Eddie. You don't want to think about the bad stuff, but there was certainly he was a human being. There was certainly a lot some demons in Eddie's life, no doubt. And but the mystery to me was it will forever be why? What in the world? I mean, yeah. that's that never made any sense to me. Yeah, I, I'd like to the, be the, the, the whole the whole Michael Ant the feud. I mean, the things that Eddie said. I mean, just that were one. I mean, outlandish and two, mean spirit and three. Why? Yeah, but uh, I think I'm going to be going to one of the Sammy shows in Vegas. I Very didn't cool. Seven David Lee Roth shows in Vegas, but I think we'll get one Sammy. We'll do the seven to one ratio. So you know, I'll report back, and if anyone is still listening to this and happens to be going to Vegas for that, uh, let me know. See you there. Look out. For, keep an eye out for Darren. <laughs> Buy him yeah. a drink after all this. Uh, you know, as long as it's not, say, uh, Beach Bar Rum or Cabo Tequila, <laughs> we'll be fine. I love it. All right. Well, we didn't, we didn't, we didn't tease it at the top, but we got a great interview. Yeah, I was asked back in November, hey, uh, Steve Vai is going to be doing press for his new album, but you can't publish this until January because he he's a very, very smart guy. I think he realized if he started taping all of his interviews well in advance of the January release date, uh, then he doesn't have to do much that week of release. So I spoke with right. him. And I think I had 25-ish minutes with it. So the first 10, 15 minutes, we're kind of talking about the new album and his creativity. But uh, he let me dig into a little DLR era stuff as well. And couldn't have asked for a nicer guy than Steve I. So nice. It's uh, it's shocking. Yeah, he's I've, I've always I was a big fan of his before he joined Days Band. I loved him in Alcatraz. The Zappa <laughs> stuff was a little too esoteric but I started for me. But I started reading about him. And then once I got into his solo stuff, like the Flexable um single if i remember that was like a very that was actually a flexible single if i, I recall yeah. and i loved him in alcatraz and then i was just like this is the guy that dave picked oh my god and of course 
just blew me away every note he played with Dave. Well, he certainly has been in the news of late because he just uh, released a, a great album in Violet. In Violate. And uh, I know he had to postpone a tour because he had surgery. Yeah. And, you know, I've seen some things. We won't tease it here as far as what you guys talked about. You can listen to the interview. But I've, I've seen him mention some things in some interviews about Dave. Uh, the biggest being that any possibility of reunion, the quote was, the, the train has left the station, which I think we all knew. So That's true. But you're going to hear a little bit about Steve Vai in the Jake Fawn interview. So teasing ahead in ep- an episode or five right here. So long story short, the train may have left the station, but Steve Vai has been in the same room as David Lee Roth in the past few years. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah, that's, again, the behind the scenes stuff, the stuff we all we all would love to see and hear. Yeah. So, you know, we have some other interviews in the can, not just Jake Fawn, not just Frankie Lindia, who is part of the original Vegas shows in 2020. Other folks, more to come and uh, help us figure out who Injun Joe, Joe Injun is, because he is our favorite guy on the planet in the DLR universe. <laughs> um, we've, we've, we've got fans and friends of the podcast. How funny would it be if it was Pete Angelus under alias just wanting to <laughs> vent all the stuff? <laughs> or if it was Matt Sencio. Oh, man. Oh, my goodness. By the way, I'll ask you, but before I, you know, say final parting words, has anyone heard anything about Matt Sencio since 2006? You're asking the wrong. I have no idea. No. Yeah, it, it kind of looks like he was there for when. Dave, like the peak of the radio show, and then he was with him for him rejoining Van Halen, and then he disappeared. And he's never done any interviews, and he's been super quiet. Where's Matt Sensio? Living a quiet life somewhere, I guess. <laughs> yeah, so whatever that is. Hey, thanks for bearing with us. Yeah, and before we get to the podcast, stay tuned for a quick word from a good friend of the podcast, Eric Senich, who's got a great podcast himself, the Booked on Rock podcast. Been a big supporter of our show, one of the great writers at the Van Halen News Desk. Did we have him on two episodes? We had him on two episodes. Yeah. I know we the second one we did was we did under, an underrated songs episode where we each, we each picked, uh, yeah. I think it was five underrated songs and chopped it all up. One of my favorite episodes. That was a good time. Eric's great. I love the Van Halen News Desk and has for years. And I love his podcast, the Booked on Rock podcast. Yes, it's a great follow-up from his Discovery podcast, which preceded it. And uh Hey, I support Eric. If if I do, you should, right? <laughs> There's the endorsement. <laughs> There's the endorsement. Shout yeah. out and props to Eric. And thank you, folks, for uh, listening and downloading. And, of course, you can reach us at Twitter. And you can reach Darren through YouTube, where Paltrowcast also resides and airs. And be sure to, you can shoot us an email at the DLRcast at Outlook.com. Vegas, babe. No, I'm not doing that. You'll, you'll see what do I mean. a do a supercut of that. <laughs> oh, next up. That'll be our fade out. Oh goodness. But yeah, thanks again, and thanks to you, Steve, for putting the episode together. You got it. 
This is Eric Senich, host of Booked on Rock. Join me for deep dive discussions on the greatest artists, albums, and songs in classic rock with the authors who've written all about them. You look at Joey Ramone. He, he just looked like a weird dude, but he had this unbelievable voice. He sounded like Elvis. Beggar's Banquet transported me. It scared me. It excited me. John was deeply moved and revolutionized by Yoko. Find Booked on Rock wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts or just go to bookedonrock.com. Hey there. How you doing, Darren? Reading yourself there, Steve. Great. I'm doing great. Cool room you got there. <laughs> there there may or may not be a headshot of you behind there, but the key. <laughs> it's okay. Thank you for doing this. My uh, pleasure. We will hold this until January as requested, but I have dug into your new album. When did you actually finish it? Just last week. Really? Yeah. I, I It was kind of a, a very concerted effort. And as you know, with any project, it has a tendency to run up to the deadline and cross the finish line by hairs. So I, uh, I can't, I, it's so, it's so interesting to me how when I look back, I've made that deadline without compromising anything mm -hmm. every time. But that deadline was met like within an hour. And we're talking about a year of work. And that's what happened this time. It was the funniest thing, oddest thing. You know, I the mastering lab needed the final master at, you know, noon. And it was 1030, 11 o'clock. And I'm putting the finishing touches on the last mix, you know. And I sent it in and I got the first ref back and I had changes to make. And finally, when I got the third ref, which was probably three or four days, um, it was approved and it was sent out to you guys and you got it right away. So, yeah, <laughs> we got that. We got some notes about the album, which I want to delve into. One thing I don't know about you now, you're very intricate in terms of your performance, your composition, the thought that goes behind the guitars, etc. But I don't know about your demoing process. Do you mm. do fully produced demos before you start tracking an album? No. Um, what I do is find snippets. Now, there's various processes that go into finding the inspiration for a song. But what I do occasionally is uh, I'll find a snippet of something that I recorded that has some kind of energy in it, you know? Mm -hmm. Like you pick up the guitar, you start noodling, and occasionally it's like whoa what's that okay that's good and i capture it like on my iphone and it's really it's like an electric guitar just not plugged in on an iphone mm -hmm. that's my demo and it might consist of 10 seconds of a riff but the the dna for the entire song is in it so then i start fleshing it out and it it could it could be conceived sort of as a, a a demo approach but it's it's the take you know what i mean i don't do take after take after take after take you know i uh once i get a mental picture mm -hmm. of what the song needs to be there's no demoing hmm. do you hear the drums in your head when you're writing i hear uh, sometimes very specific mm -hmm. yes but at the offset of listening for a drum beat, a lot of times that happens even before the song is written because the, 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 the way, the, uh, 
for me, sometimes if there's a foundation of mm -hmm. a groove that inspires you to play something on it that works, you know, so um, with with drums, it's based on the song. Sometimes I, I'm neurotically forensic, you know, like, I don't know, take something like the song Kill the Guy with the Ball, which is on one of my records called Alien Love Secrets. Every single kick, every snare, every hi-hat, everything was heard by me, you know? But then there's times where I just uh, I just tell the drummer, okay, here, here's the tempo, what do you got? You know, so it's, it, there's no real one way. Sometimes it's a clear picture. Sometimes it's like a, a, just a sort of a dimensional understanding. Okay, it needs to kind of be like this. Hmm. So, so. so yeah, to recap, you kind of demo more in your head than actually tracking. And the drumming is, while it's important to the song, it's one of the later things to come a lot of the time per se. But have you ever written on piano? Or does everything get written on the guitar or your head? Any means necessary. Okay. You know, it's it, there's no uh, exclusion of potential. <laughs> and uh, for me, I think music comes to me not unlike it comes to other musicians. Mm -hmm. uh, there's various methods. Some of them are intellectual, where you're thinking academics, music theory, and you know, I got I know that this is going to work because the book says so, you know, whatever. <laughs> and that's fine. You can get a, you know, get a lot done that way. Uh, in a compositional setting, uh, when you're composing, there's, there's no um, collaborating. <laughs> you know, this is, this is your vision, and you just have to know the language to get your point across. Wow. That, that all blows me away about you because your Berkeley roots, taking that into mind, just about everyone I know who can compose and speak about music theory, they learned it all from the piano, not the guitar. Do I have it correct that it all comes from the guitar from you, that you were able to pick up music theory based on the guitar? No, not at all. Oh, okay. uh, it, comes from, it, it comes from what it is, music theory. Mm -hmm. It's translated through every instrument, you know? So uh, the way that various songwriters and composers get that out of themselves can be through a particular instrument mm -hmm. for me music theory stands apart from a specific instrument because it applies to all so when i compose there's there's times where i visualize something i go oh okay and then i got to figure out how to get it down there's times where i hear something from another artist that just lights me up i'm like oh that is that energy that groove that atmosphere that they created that they captured i'm inspired but i want to do something like that when i say that in my head and it comes out it, it's very different than what they did but the inspiration is is there from the energy so that didn't require an instrument mm -hmm. it required being inspired um, and then there's times where <clears throat> I obviously pick up the guitar and every, you know, a song is written based on what I can do on that. Mm -hmm. But when I compose, uh, if I'm composing a, a, a huge orchestra score, 
it, it, it all I need on a piano occasionally is like to hear a chord you know I got okay because the chord has within it the 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 atmosphere of the the whole tonal structure mm -hmm. so the, how you dish that out is up to you as a composer but the but when you play a B flat major seven six nine sharp eleven chord and you go oh okay that it's not a it doesn't become a B flat minor a B flat major six nine sharp eleven chord anymore it becomes oh that right so once it becomes that in your imagination that's a prime importance because everything comes everything you do after that comes from this atmosphere that you um, embraced so whatever language you use as a musician to get it out that's what that's your tools that's at your disposal hmm. right and and then the 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 theory itself it, it, it may be in the background but it's not the primary force the primary force is the atmosphere of the chord because with that chord I can write an entire symphony you know what I mean and you'd never you'd never know it so one of the things that I like to do when I'm looking for a creative idea mm -hmm. on the guitar or compositionally or whatever is I uh, this happens at night a lot when I go to bed it's really quite an amazing thing to do and anybody can do it you you clear your you have to clear your mind you have to relax it you have to be still which means the little voice that's always talking you, you just have to shut it up for a minute you know even a moment and and you just become aware and you put all your attention in your ability to listen inside of yourself okay now for a lot of people they hear a phrase like that and they're like okay there goes by again what is he talking about mumbo jumbo i'm, I'm still with you, yeah, you but there are many people that understand what that means to listen inside yourself so when you're doing that you don't try to create something you allow it you allow your natural musical um inner voice to just arise to just it it will speak for you you don't have to you know and and you 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 act sort of as if you're sitting in the audience watching a show and you don't have any idea what's going to happen next and the great thing about doing this is your ability to imagine is is actually infinite hmm. the only thing that blocks you is your belief in practicality your belief that yeah but i can't even imagine that because i can't do it who can do it you know how am i going to do that well, this is the thing that blocks a lot of the ability to hear these melodies or the, the music that's inside of you. So I'll just I'll just lay there and I'll just shut up, you know, and just listen really intensely. And then there's no there's no limit on instrumentation, you know, unless I decide that there is, but I don't. So everything, everything is every sound that I've imagined or haven't even imagined is available because I don't put any limitations. And then, the, 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 it's, it's not like sounds arise. Mm -hmm. they're, recog it, it's recogni they're recognized, they're imagined, they're there. And then 
that can really be inspiring because there's no rules. There's no like, okay, this is the A section and okay, let me see, this is the B section. Okay, well, no, I should go to the C section here because that's what songs usually do. And if I don't do that, then it's not gonna be a real song. This all, all of this is, that's the talk in the head. See? But if you wanna know who you really are musically, you have to enter that dimension. And then yeah. you have to have the courage to bring it out into the world with no excuses. So that takes balls. It, it sounds like there's no such thing as writer's block for Steve Vai because you can actually have the guitar in your hand and try and, to write, or you could actually just shut yourself up, listen, and then find the song that way, that there's multiple ways to find that inspiration. Yes, and, and Steve Vai has struggled at times uh, through his life discovering that because Steve Vai battles his ego too. <laughs> and you know, and and uh, yeah. the ego says, "When I, th this is when I have writer's block. I have to do something that everybody is going to love. Mm -hmm. I have to do something that fits in so well that everybody knows how great I am, and it's a hit, and I make a lot of money, by the way. So that's what I need to do. What am I going to do? How can I have anything but writer's block? You know." Because I, yeah. pe the people who are actually making music that that does fit that criteria are doing things that are natural to them. It just so happens that their world of creation is based more in music that's more accessible. Yeah, well, that's an interesting thing about your career where you have done some amazingly accessible radio ready stuff. You've done stuff that's totally original, avant-garde, and then you've done stuff that's also in the middle of the two. So in a good way, we never know what we're going to get when we get an album from you. So, so keep us guessing. Like Avalanche, am I saying that correct from the new album? Avalanche, yeah. Totally put vocals on that. That could be on a Dragon Force album. Right. You totally hear that in, in Rock Band in a great way. So did you know that a song like that, for example, has commercial potential or you just write it and don't even think about that? No, that, that part of my brain lives in a fantasy because I think all my stuff is radio friendly. <laughs> Not really, but uh, I've dabbled with chasing radio and realized that for an artist like myself, it's futile. Not that... I my you know I, I, anything I do wouldn't be played on the radio, but radio is a is a slippery slope. Sure, because good music to the people who believe it's good gets on the radio. You know, otherwise, if it's crappy music and it was bought into position, right, it doesn't have any legs, and it it just becomes like beach shit you know and but but people know an inspired song you know you feel it it can be very simple but everybody's stimulated differently so luckily there's there's people who are making music that stimulate those people and every great artist expresses their true their true creative desires most effectively when they follow 
those things that are most exciting to them on a creative level. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? Yes, I, I there, see. There, yeah. yeah, there's no way out of this that you will only ever be satisfied. You will only ever feel fulfillment when you do that. You may think, no. If I write a song like Elton John or whatever, you know, and I get a big hit and all of that success comes to me, then I'll be fulfilled. Uh, no, you're going to kind of go, well, I got to top that over and over and over again in the yeah. endless treadmill of success yeah. and what we don't have. But another thing besides your new music that intrigues is you're a Long Islander by nature. I am. Uh, Carl Place is where Perfect. your build is being from. Nowadays, when you grow up on Long Island, when you hear Carl Place, you think of uh, Sam Ash and you think of Roosevelt Field Mall. When you yes. were there, there wasn't much there, correct? It was kind of like a pass through town. Yeah, well, it was uh, a lot more rural because the city has a tendency to move out onto Long Island. But when I was growing up, man, it was just the greatest place to grow up. It it was quieter, a little, a little more sleepy. We had Roosevelt Field and it was a 15 minute walk from my house and we went all the time. And it had, um, um, and, and that was the biggest mall in the country at that time. Really? So, so, so I was told. <laughs> and uh, the, as far as the Sam Ash and, and that stuff, that didn't come along uh, for me until, um, what, when did Sam Ash open in Hempstead? Maybe it was because it was in Hempstead and I didn't go as often, but at Roosevelt Field was Matthew's music and that's where I got all my goodies, you know, that's where I would buy my strings and I got my first guitar and that kind of thing. You made it out of Long Island around 78, something like that? Yeah, when I graduated, I, I went to Berkeley College of Music in Boston. Got it. Makes sense. Did you growing up um, ever see a band called I Wrote It Down? Uh, sorry. Did I not write that down? City Function, Funk, F-U-N-K. You know what? I hadn't. I, I don't believe so. I mean, when I was young, uh, teenager, on Long Island doing the bar circuit. It was bands like Twisted Sister. We'd go see them all the time. And Rat Race Choir, the Good Rats. Do you remember the Good Rats? Oh yeah, Pepe Marcello was that the singer. What an incredible band, yeah. you know? And uh, my claim to fame at the time was that I had purchased from somebody one of those little red, uh, one of those little orange MXR phase 90s. Yeah from a guy who had stole it from the guitarist and the good rats. So as bad as I felt that it was stolen from him, I, I would just sit and look at it. This it's really his. I still have it. It's in my closet, right? Over, right in back of me. <laughs> was that guitarist Bruce Kulick? No, no, that was, uh, this was way before. That, that was, uh, what's his name? John Gatto, John Gatto. Got okay. it, wow. Okay, so you remember all your Long Island stuff. You didn't just bury it in a closet and go, I moved. Oh, I am so grateful that I grew up on Long Island. I had in my town, just on my street, when I was a kid, there was an incredibly rich music culture just because of a couple of kids. One of them in particular, a friend of mine, John Sergio, was a little older than me. And I'm, I'm like 10, 11, 9, you know, whatever, whatever, all the way through. 
Uh, he was always musical. He always was into good music and he just had great taste. And I would go and, you know, listen to the music that my sister was listening to, which was like all like Led Zeppelin and Alice Cooper and Aerosmith, you know. And I was kind of um, limited because I didn't, uh, that's all I knew and that's all I wanted to know, you know. But then I remember after I had discovered that music, I, I went to John's and I go in his room and he's got all these posters of like uh, Jethro Tull, Emerson, Lake and Palmer, Yes, Queen. And he turned me on to all this music, you know, and it was it was like a blossoming, you know, and then and he played guitar. And when he started playing, like I couldn't believe that he could actually play some notes. And that's when I said to him, you must be the best guitarist in town. And he said, well, if you think I'm good, you should see my teacher, Joe Satriani. And that's uh, he gave me Joe's number. And that's how I started. Joe Satriani, it. the guitarist of City Function. <laughs> that, that's yeah, right. where I was going with that one. Yeah, he was when he was 16. He was in a, a funk band where uh, he had his afro. Oh, is that Joe's? Was that Joe's band? Yes. Oh, yes, yes. Now I okay. Now I get it. Yeah, that was funny. The, that there's a couple of photos floating around. <laughs> and then something I didn't know about you until I read Brad Talinsky's book that came out about Eddie Van Halen is that basically you were the credit for 5150 happening through a chain of events. Have you ever heard that or? Well, you you inviting Eddie Van Halen to Frank Zappa's studio is what provided the inspiration of, oh, I should have one of these. Ah, I didn't know that. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. If you saw Frank's studio, you'd anybody would want one. (laughs) I absolutely believe that. Do you have do you have time for one or two DLR questions and then I'll let you roam free? Yeah. What time is it? It is 321 p.m. Eastern. Okay, so yeah, I got um, my next interview is twelve thirty. So you got we got nine minutes. <laughs> okay, the first question that I have is: you brought Chris Frazier into the DLR sessions early on, and he wound up parting ways. Uh, you were still cool with him, however, because you use him on future projects. Am I correct about that? Well, yeah. What happened was um, Billy had brought me in. And this was after they, from what I understand, you know, Billy would be a good person to ask. Uh, I think they had tried out like, or they were working with or touching uh, like three other guitar players. I know Steve Stevens was the first or second. I had heard that. And, uh, but when I got, you know, when I came in, we, we kind of all gelled. Uh, And at the time there was no drummer. So I brought Chris in now to, to, help us you know now chris chris is a great drummer i've used him on many records and yeah but for the kind of thing you know there was there was many drummers that tried out eventually that were great drummers but it 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 just takes a certain kind of uh sound and and just rock and roll sensibility for something like that and uh you know dave needed to feel comfortable and chris was great you know it doesn't diminish him as an artist at all still working it, regularly today and he's in foreigner so things were foreigner out. for many years you know and uh so but dave wanted us to try out some other drummers and we um billy and i held auditions and it was like oh, there's so many I, I don't know how many <laughs> it was so many drummers 
But when when Greg Bissonette entered the room, there was no there was no question anymore. You know, there was just an instant recognition of okay, the, he's the right guy. Got it. And then with keyboards, something that is confusing about Edom and Smile. I've interviewed Jesse Harms before. I know he played on a couple of tracks. Jeff Bova played on a couple of tracks, and then eventually Brett wound up in the band first as like half on the stage, like half the show, half not on the stage. Was originally Brett's gig, but he wasn't available. Do you know who was the original keyboard player? No, there was the, when you're referring to Edom and Smile. Yeah, in the very beginning, you know, we had written the music and recorded it, and the keyboards were something that were very gently massaged into the a, right. a couple of songs, and I'm not really sure you know, who was doing what, because it wasn't something I was focusing on at the time. The the producer and the, you know, uh, engineer said, okay, we got this guy here. Let's put a little keyboards on, you know, so that, so studio recording, Brett wasn't even a twinkle in the eye yet. You know, we didn't know anything about Brett. He, he wasn't there beforehand because there's a difference between well, there could be a difference between a studio musician and a touring musician. You know, studio right. musicians have different brain muscles. You know, they right. like to stay at home. They don't want to leave town. They like they're getting paid exorbitant amounts of money uh, to when they're when they're for, you know, first tier players. And Greg was number one, if not one or two studio drummer in Los Angeles, you know, him and Vinny and um, and and I think it was Greg's roommate, Mark. Um, sorry, I can't remember his last name. So when you when you hire a musician to go on tour, it's a whole. The, even the personality has has to. They have to be a good hang. I think you're saying they have to be a good hang. They got to be a happy camper. You know, they got to enjoy being away from home, or or at least be able to tolerate it. They you know they can't be sad sack worry ward. <laughs> miserable son of a bitches you know because that that fucks up everything you know um right. so uh and i'm not saying that all studio musicians are miserable you know it's not on tour it's not that case at all but brett came along and he was absolutely ideal at the right time which was after the record was made and everything we needed a, a touring guy so i think i just think uh, I, I can't speak for dave you know but no, I, can. <laughs> yeah, right. Nobody can. <laughs> I believe that, you know, coming from Van Halen and then, the, you know, the power rock kind of foundation that bands had at the time, keyboards were not really something that was associated with Van Halen very much, you know, until, you know, the, the jump and all that stuff. And it was still it was Edward playing. Yeah. So to have background keyboards on the stage at first was um i think the idea was a little precarious you know so it started out as you mentioned i don't really even recall a lot of this because it wasn't it just wasn't important <laughs> to me but i think that you know brett started out sort of off stage sort of like hey i think there's a i think there's a keyboard player there are they playing the tracks or there's a keyboard player yes <laughs> yeah and then eventually you know he became an integral part because he was writing music and when skyscraper came along you know brett was uh, i think he contributed like th three so three or so songs to the record Eight so songs. He, 
Yeah, he became a uh, more of an entity in the band, so they brought him out. And then the last thing before I let you go, so Risa Salvaje, were you there for the sessions of that, or is it just Billy and Dave in the studio to finish that one? No, I didn't go to the studio. That Dave did that, knocked that off in like a day or two. Wow. You know, they just he just took the they took the masters and just overdubbed Dave singing in Spanish on them. Now I know. Well, thank you for the many years of great music. There isn't a day that goes by where I don't make my wife do the Yankee Rose guitar intro. So <laughs> tell her I said I'm sorry. <laughs> so thank you, Steve. Uh, and thank you, Darren. Looking forward to the touring. Take care. You got it, brother. I appreciate it. Bye bye.